Again, good morning and welcome to the panel discussion where we're going to be talking about college transition and persistence. As was mentioned earlier, President Maimon has a, a, a meeting with uh, the governor and other uh, public uh, university presidents. So I, I, I was somewhat tickled by the fact that she said, can we modify this and maybe do something uh, analogous with speed dating uh, in terms of scholarly exchange? So uh, in keeping with that, uh, please welcome President Maimon. Well, good morning, and thank you so much for accommodating. Uh, this was an invitation to meet with Governor Pritzker that came up after I had already committed to be with all of you. And uh, I really wanted to honor that commitment. This is such an important conference. But uh, when the governor calls the public university presidents together, it's very important for us to uh, respond to this call. Uh, the, this, Governor Pritzker has a positive view of public higher education, and uh, that's a relief. So uh, this really will be speed dating. I'm going to rush through a few points. Uh, fortunately, uh, my friend Naveen is here. We uh, are very much on the same wavelength, and I see from the bios I'm on the same wavelength with my, the other panelists as well. And so they may be in the position of finishing my sentences literally. Uh, I am completing my 12th year as the president of Governor's State University, one of the sponsors uh, of this conference. We are located just in the, in the south suburbs of Chicago. So we're part of the Chicagoland uh, metropolitan area. We are celebrating our 50th anniversary this year. We are a comprehensive public university, uh, but we were founded in 1969 to be innovative, to be committed to reform. And we've been doing that for 50 years in various ways. What I want to do now is just talk about, just to kind of whet your appetite for some things that I know my, my uh, co-panelists and others in the conference will be speaking about on the uh, point of uh, uh, college transition and persistence. Now, first of all, I think it's very important at a conference like this, we think in terms, big terms. Daniel Burnham is kind of the patron saint of Chicago. And he says, make no little plans. And this is a time in education where little plans just won't cut it. We have to think in terms of transformation and revolution. Why? First of all, the epistemology, ways of knowing, completely changed in this century. Conveying information is not, in, is not education anymore, if it ever was. But right now, when information is available with the click of a key, then education has to be focused on evaluating information, connecting the dots with various pieces of information, and then applying that information to situations that are different from the original place where it was learned. And this is all something very challenging for all of us, and it means a real change. We also are teaching what we call a new majority. Governor State University was focused on these students in, that, is, that are now in the majority before they were in the majority. 
and that means first generation, students of color, adults, and military veterans. That is now the new majority in higher education. So we have a new epistemology and we have a new majority. The other really important point is that the first year of college is the most important. And I know that Emily has written a wonderful book uh, about the make or break year as ninth grade in high school. And I, and, but I think that that's true. But I think that if you look at the college experience, that first year of high school is make or break in high school, that first year of college is make or break in college. Yet, uh, we have a situation in this country, and there are all sorts of articles that refer to it, we don't take that first year seriously enough across the country. Uh, we have articles called, The University is a Ticking Time Bomb. Why? Because we're trying to educate first-year students on the cheap. Now, there are many adjuncts, part-time faculty who love to teach and do their best, but at $18,000 a year for those uh, adjuncts who are teaching, it just doesn't work. At Governor State University, only full-time faculty members teach freshmen. Only full-time faculty members teach freshmen. So one of the revolutionary ideas is that we have to invest more in how those first-year students are taught. And we must turn this situation around in terms of the way uh, higher education is organized to have that first year taught by uh, maybe dedicated uh, adjuncts, but people who are the most overworked, underpaid in the academy. It's unsustainable. So I hope in this conference we're going to be talking more about that. It all, that involves changing PhD programs, particularly in English and the humanities, to prepare faculty members for full-time teaching, and not just teaching, but research on the first-year classes. There's so much we don't know. There's so much we don't know about uh, students, not just cognitively in the first year, but what, what's the influence of food and housing insecurity on the achievement of our students in the first year. We need research on that. Also, we need to develop seamless pathways from the community colleges to university graduation. You're going to find in your uh, satchels uh, a uh, brochure on a Kresge Foundation-supported program uh, at Governor State University to help universities uh, and community colleges go way beyond articulation to true seamless pathways. So, uh, what I need to say now, this is just, as I say, speed dating, read my book. Uh, it's called Leading Academic Change, Vision, Strategy, Transformation. Uh, I'll be back at lunch to have conversations with any of you uh, about some of these ideas. And now um, I have to go and explain to Governor Pritzker about college transition and persistence. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you, President Maimon. What we will do here in terms of the uh, format for the panel discussion is I'll ask uh, 
each of the, uh, the panelists to uh, introduce themselves, give you some uh, background relative to their experience and research in this area of transition and persistence, college transition and persistence. And then uh, initially we'll talk a little bit about the landscape, uh, what, we, uh, what we currently uh, are confronted with, uh, and then we'll, we'll go in depth, we'll kind of go back around again and talk about some of the challenges and some of the hurdles and some of the innovative uh, strategies uh, and uh, techniques for trying to address that to yield success in that regard. So uh, we'll go back here and uh, talk about initially uh, each of the panelists and their background. In particular, uh, Emily Crone Phillips and her book and her research, uh, The Make or Break Year. And the, uh, the subtitle is a little bit more elucidating, Solving the Dropout Crisis, One Ninth Grader at a Time. So please welcome Emily Cronfields. Thank you for having me today, and I appreciate your time. Uh, I recently published a book called Make a Break Year, and I think when you heard that it was about solving the dropout crisis one ninth grader at a time, you may have thought, why are we listening to somebody talk about high school graduation and college persistence transition panel? Um, but as Elaine mentioned, I think there are huge parallels between what happens to One of the book tells the story, um, actually Chicago, and how Chicago turned its dropout crisis into what I call a chronic but manageable disease. So I don't say it can solve their high school dropout crisis. Um, but the uh, graduation rate has improved significantly in Chicago. And a lot of that came from a very intensive focus on helping ninth graders make a good transition elementary school to high school. And it seems a little bit counterintuitive. For a very long time, dropout programs were focused on junior year or right before about to drop out. And this was a huge shift system-wide for people to start focusing on the ninth grade year. And this focus led to huge improvements in students' tax rates in ninth grade and huge improvements in graduation rates three years down the line. Um, and as the panel continues, I'll talk a little bit about why that happened in the past. But I think that this story might help you all um, as you think about what makes a successful college program. Um, really think about what schools can do. Um, because one of the biggest shifts in Chicago in the dropout rate was for a very long time people thought of dropping out of high school as a kid problem, as a neighborhood problem as something that happened because kids weren't prepared or because um, something happened to knock them off track. And that is true sometimes. Sometimes it's an academic problem. Sometimes it's something that happens in a kid's life. But what the story in Chicago really tells us is that schools and institutions can have a huge impact on whether or not students graduate. And that shift is taking place in a school across Chicago where people went from thinking of high school as um, you know, helping the students who are ready to be there to completely shifting the high school students. They had a responsibility to make sure students graduate. And I think that shift has really happened in Chicago high schools. And um, I think that is a shift that is happening in higher ed. Um, and 
particularly in the last decade. And you put that in the context of, you know, I look at the Chicago and just our area, and CPS in particular, when we started our work at National Blue to address this equity gap, 87% of our kids in Chicago public schools came from the white households. 87% I couldn't believe it. It's now down to 80, which is because our lowest income kids have moved out, not because it's improved that much. And statewide, 50% of our kids are coming from low-income houses. So just think about that. One out of every two kids is accessing school lunches, is not coming from a family that has a lot of resources to support them. And when you think about how that already sets you up for creating a huge opportunity gap, just those lack of resources, and then you think about the downstream impact on our communities, on our economy, on our nation, it is something that keeps me up at night and that just seems absolutely unsustainable and is truly a moral imperative that we have to address to close that gap, to help individuals achieve their potential, to, to achieve sustainable careers so that we can drive social and economic mobility for them, their families, and their communities. And that's what I'm hoping we get to focus on today in terms of the kinds of things that we're doing and what kinds of things that I think that are uh, really important if we want to make sure that we do what I think is the right thing to do to help kids achieve their potential. I think of Bill Clinton, I heard him at a conference and he said, for those of us who have fewer, fewer years ahead of us than behind us, and I certainly put myself in that category now, we owe it to those who have more years ahead of them to create a better world for them help them achieve that potential. And I think that is the obligation of K-12 schools, higher education, and employers. And that's my opening comment, thank you. <laughs> Excellent, thank you, Doug. As you look at the, at the current landscape, and we're looking at it in terms of the critical ninth grade year in transitioning from elementary, middle school to high school, we're looking at individual um, students that uh, choose to go to college and in that transition in that critical freshman year, as we've heard before, uh, and then just the retention issues that colleges and universities are facing now relative to persistence um, all the way through graduation. If you look at the data in terms of, if you start with 109th graders, how many eventually get to where they are truly, you know, completing a baccalaureate degree, it's, 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 it's a small fraction of those that started off in ninth grade. So what are, what are some of those, those hurdles, those obstacles? And, and, I'm a historian by training, so I know that some of those we've had uh, throughout the, the latter part of the, the 20th century and on into the 21st century, and some of those are, are relatively new, uh, sort of 21st century phenomena, but what are some of those hurdles, some of those obstacles, some of those potential impediments um, that we have to confront, whether it's in secondary school or post-secondary? Sure, I'll start, that's a big question. I'll start and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you finish. Um, one thing from a historical perspective um, to know, at least about Chicago, and that's my area of expertise, is that um, in 2006, 9% of students who started ninth grade would go on to get a four-year college degree. Today, that number is up to, I think it's 16 or 18%, maybe 18% which is not enough, and I think the national number is 22%. So that is not nearly enough, and you have to hold that that's an incredible improvement. So there are good things happening, um, 
especially in the city. National Lewis is part of, of that story of people spending time thinking about what do we need to do at every, every level to get kids to where they need to be. Um, there are certain points. One of the things that I think people don't sort of recognize is they think when they think of, say, ninth grade or high school graduation is that a, as being a very low-level goal. And it is. It's certainly not enough. But as graduation rates have improved in the city of Chicago, so have college enrollment rates and college persistent rate, persistence rates. And that gets to potential. There were a tremendous number of students who were dropping out of high school who had the potential not only to go to college, but also to persist in college. And so um, I think one of the things that has been a real shift, and I think that the shift needs to keep happening, is that there was this feeling that, oh, if, if students dropped out, then they weren't college material. Um, and that is not the case at all. There has been a huge improvement in high school graduation rates, and that has also led to a big improvement in, in, in college um, enrollment rates, at least in the city. And one of the things that we found was that if students succeed in ninth grade, it changes their entire attitude about school. It changes how they think about themselves. It changes their mindsets. And succeeding in ninth grade inculcates you, it makes you much more likely to succeed, even if there aren't many interventions in 10th grade and 11th grade, because it changes how you see yourself as part of a community. And that is a huge, um, that's a huge issue also for college freshmen. Do you succeed right in the beginning when you get there? Does that make you feel like you belong in this college environment? There are certain mindsets that students need to have to feel like they belong and to persist. One of them is, I can succeed at this. One of them is, I belong in this academic community. One of them is, if I work hard, I will see my effort improve. And one of them is, this work has meaning for me. Um, and so these four academic mindsets are so critical to getting right, both freshman year in high school and freshman year in college. And so I think um, one of the biggest hurdles is people get to college and they struggle when they first arrive, or they don't feel like they're part of that academic community. They don't feel like they belong. And, and so they don't persist. And so that is a really critical intervention point and a point where um, there can be huge differences made. So let me amplify a little bit on that, at least from the, the college perspective. We worked, so five years ago we launched a program we call it Pathways, and it was designed specifically to address the needs of uh, students coming from underserved backgrounds, but it's really meant to address any student's needs that, uh, that, that wants to go to college, but we were wanting to ensure that, again, to close the opportunity gap, people had to feel like they were welcome. And uh, the program was designed to cost only $10,000 a year because first we wanted to get over the, the, the pricing issue that often inhibits individuals from seeking college in the first place. But then it was, we actually re-engineered this and created it with every best practice out there that we could 
find, in addition to any data we could find, that would help us to improve the outcomes for students coming from high school. We also deliberately chose to be an access institution, so students had, they only had to have a 2-0 to come in. We collected their ACT score, but we didn't require it. But we wanted it for the data set to see if it was predictive of anything. So uh, the program, when you think about the vulnerable years, um, so we have a profile of student that's like 86% Pell eligible, which means that they're low income. It's about 60% Latino, 40% African American, so very diverse population. And today we're serving almost 1,100 students in that program. Uh, our first to second year persistence, so typically in that profile of students, the first to second year persistence is about 40%. They drop out very quickly. Ours sticks around 70. And the reason it does is because of the deliberate effort to work with those students. So every student has their own success coach. They carry a caseload of about 115 kids. And they know those kids inside and out. They know what's going on in their lives. They know what stressors are going on. They know the issues that they're facing. We use predictive analytics to get ahead of when they're vulnerable. So we have categories for them around green, orange, or red category. Uh, whether they're missing classes, whether we know there's issues in their families. So, so there's categories that we track. And there are weekly meetings where these students are triaged by groups who own the cohort of 115 to determine what interventions need to happen for anybody in orange or red category. So it is, it is a big lift to keep these students moving through, but it is a lift worth it. When you talk to our students, they talk about the fact that uh, the university feels like coming home. So think about that, because many of them don't feel like home is as stable as coming to the university, because it's a very tight-knit community, they're close with their coaches, their coaches care about who they are. They, when they're missing class, they're on the phone going, what's going on, how can we help you? And in the years, we've done things like help them find homes, because they became homeless due to family situations, help provide support for the you know, get them to find support for their families so that they had time to study. I mean, we literally teach them all these kinds of coping mechanisms because they have often very complicated lives. This is the population that, that is coming up today that is super, super vulnerable. And if we don't make that deliberate effort to keep working with them, we're gonna lose an entire generation that has huge potential. Because when I see them, and I spend a lot of time with our students, uh, that when I see them and see how they're growing, I think, what a complete waste if we don't take the time, because the potential I see in, in these kids is unbelievable. And we're gonna see that impact down the road. But those are the kinds of things that I think that more institutions need to own, and the data needs to be a critical piece of the learning of the, the program. So just a, a little aside, like one of the, findings we found a couple of years ago, which is not, it's the same problems you see in high school. We saw that our African-American males were dropping out at a much faster rate than any other group. And we were like, this is, and this is a national issue. This wasn't just our issue. So uh, we, we implemented a program, the, the, the post-secondary version of BAM. If you remember, BAM is Becoming a Man. It's a program that was, I think, started here in Chicago. But it's a program that created a support system just for men of color. And 
Just implementing that program this year, we've seen a huge increase in retention in our population of black males. So everything that we do is data-driven. When we see a situation that's an issue, we immediately go in and triage it and change the program to address those needs. This is so cool. <laughs> I did not know that this is what was going on at Nationalist, and this is, this is so exciting to me because um, I, I, I remember when people started talking about this sort of five or six years ago, that, and, and to hear what, what's become of it is so, it's really, those numbers are so exciting. It's pretty powerful, yeah. And um, just to get, for me to get a sense for who's in the room, how many of you are working in higher ed, and how many of you are working, K-12. like maybe, a sh- yeah, K-12, like a show of hands? Are you all more K-12 or higher ed? K-12, K-12 raise your hand. Okay, and then higher ed. Oh, okay, so it's sort of mixed. Um, You know, one of the things that Chicago public school counselors have started doing is spending a lot of time looking at, when they're advising their students where to go to college, looking at the institutional graduation rates for underrepresented minority students. And there is a huge huge um, variance in how well students with very similar backgrounds do depending on what college choice they make. And when you're trying to help your students make a decision about where to go to school, looking at those numbers is so important because you don't know, are your students going to be getting the kind of support that, that was just described at, at, at National Lewis, or are you going to be going on a college campus and sort of having to fend for yourself? And that kind of support makes all the difference. And so, um, you know, I would just urge people to be thinking and, and to be really proactive with counseling students and looking into what kind of support systems do these these places have in place. Uh, can I add to that real quick for you? Yes. I'd also urge you to look at what places take seriously the career placement of their students. Because one of the things we've also, that, that just philosophically, I believe Graduating kids from college is not enough. Graduating them from high school is not enough. But particularly if you're dealing with an underserved or diverse population, what we call what we do is the career bridge. I do not feel like we're successful unless we graduate students and get them into sustainable employment that moves the needle on their economic sustainability. Let's talk a little bit about, and both of you mentioned this um, as being sort of a pillar, uh, and that is the infrastructure that is necessary, both in terms of individuals and also, uh, you talked about uh, using analytics. Uh, so what, whether it's, it's at the secondary level at the high school, what type of in- infrastructure is necessary to create that academic mindset? That's not something you can just turn the switch on. There are individuals that play a role. Certainly family is one, but also individuals within that school. Uh, and then what, what's necessary at the, at the university, college and university level uh, to create that shift, if you will, uh, so that faculty and staff feel that responsibility, that this becomes part of their, their uh, what they do uh, in, in checking analytics on students and helping to support students and counsel students and send them in that right direction. There's a lot of PD, a lot of professional development that's needed both at the high school level as well as at the uh, college university level. So if you could speak to that. Sure. Um, well, I was struck, Naveen, 
by your description of what goes on in these meetings because it's extremely, it's very similar to what was happening in Chicago around ninth grade teams looking at data. Um, and the real shift in Chicago, it first started when, when individual schools started getting data on their individual students. So for a very long time, um, people didn't really actually know how their students were doing throughout ninth grade or, or beyond. You knew sort of what your student was doing in your classroom. And you had, had very little sense of what was happening in other classrooms. And the big shift in Chicago was they started getting data for students, um, on students in five-week cycles. And now it, it's even faster, but at the time it was very revolutionary <laughs> to get five-week data cycles on students' grades, on their attendance, and on their course failures. And what Chicago Public Schools started doing was having grade-level teams that would meet every other week and look at this data and problem-solve around the data and start looking going kid by kid in some cases to make informed decisions about why students were doing well or why students were struggling. And this was a huge shift because up until that point when students were struggling, let's say you had student, you know, 20% of your kids failing math. Well, they would create another, you know, after-school tutoring for algebra. Um, but the problem was, was that Sometimes kids were failing class, classes because they really didn't know algebra, but sometimes they were failing because they were missing first period because they were dropping off a sibling um, at school before they were coming to school, or they were chronically late, um, or they were cutting class, or they had poor executive functioning skills and they didn't know how to organize themselves, so they, they, you know, they actually knew how to do the algebra, but they were never getting their homework in. And so this was the shift where people started meeting, discussing, having talks around data, around the data about kids. And data wasn't being used necessarily as like a hammer. It wasn't being used to sort of hold people's feet to the fire. It was being used to, as a flashlight to illuminate what was going on with students. And over time, these meetings got really sophisticated. And, and part of this was there was help and there was capacity building where people help people think through, well, what are the structure of these meetings? Because the structures of the meetings were really, really important. Um, how do we help people use these data? Um, so there was a lot of training involved. But these meetings really changed people's perceptions. Because the other thing that these meetings did, in addition to just letting people get more specific about what was happening with kids, was allowing people to see kids from different, from the perspective of different students, or from, of different teachers. So you might see somebody's grade and they were killing it in math. They were getting, you know, an A in math and then they were failing English. Okay, so this, this student who was doing really well in math or really well in English, that teacher might have a totally different perspective on that kid. And they could talk about it. And what's happening in your class and what's happening in my class? Oh, well, they're never in my class. Well, they're always in my class. And so these kinds of rich discussions started taking place, and it was changing relationships between teachers and students, and it was also changing relationships um, between teachers. I'm going to tell a really fast story, and then I'll, I'll hand it over to Naveen. But um, one of my favorite stories um, in reporting this book was the story of this, of this student who... Um, came up for discussion, he was failing three classes. 
and he was passing two. And the teachers start talking about him, and they have this whole protocol to discuss him. And everybody starts saying, you know, he's a really nice kid. He's really smart. What's going on? And then somebody said, well, you know, he was really doing okay until March. Does anybody else feel like he kind of fell off this cliff in March? Yes, yes, yes. Does anyone know what happened to him in March? Did anything happen with his family? No, not that I know of. I know his parents. Wait, that's when he started dating this girl. And everyone said, oh, yeah, that is totally, and they are so into each other, and they are, you know, they're never apart, and blah, 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 blah. And so these two teachers said, okay, we're going to have an, an intervention. We're going to bring both of them together and have a discussion with both of them because she's a really good student, and maybe she can put a little pressure on her boyfriend. Well, they bring them together. They have this discussion, um, and he's really embarrassed, and she's really mad that her, her you know, her boyfriend is is not doing well and and so anyway long story short um he gets some tutoring in one subject that he was really struggling in the other two he was just distracted and um he ends up doing okay freshman year and I ended up interviewing him senior year and freshman year he was on the verge of failing and by senior year he wasn't getting top grades he was getting c's b's and c's but he was the head of the um he was the secretary general for the for the school's model un he was the head of their tech club he had become a peer mentor and he was going to school and he wanted to go to school for social work and he was in real danger of dropping out and so when you talk about um these kinds of strategies i loved how naveen you talked about it as as a talent loss strategy because it is a talent loss issue this is not just an intervention problem. This is a talent loss problem. That student has so much talent, and he's going to bring it, and he's going to college in the fall. Um, and he said he remembers that day so well, and, and the teachers who, and how it changed his perception of what teachers were there to do. Um, and he said he went from thinking that teachers were there to teach to teachers were being there to support him. And so this was... This was not this really crazy high-tech intervention. It was relationship building. Um, and, and it's unbelievable what kind of power that can have. So. Uh, so let me pick up on a couple of parts around uh, the infrastructure that uh, is required to sort of really start changing things. And, uh, so I would say that uh, the majority of people I encounter in general and at our institution start out as pretty data-phobic. Uh, most people don't like go, oh my god, yes, get me data, that will help me. Uh, and so I call part of the journey at our institution a data journey. And uh, so with our undergraduate program that I described earlier, like, so there's different ways to get an institution there. With that program, literally, we, we went out and we hired new faculty with a new approach. And it was interesting, because um, I literally rewrote the ad when we were looking for faculty. And it was, the ad was sort of like, come join us on a ground floor opportunity to re-envision higher ed and helping students achieve their dreams. And, uh, and the, I mean, we had applications coming out the wall. 
when people sort of had this chance to think about it differently. So they came in very open-minded around what, how we were going to approach things differently. So that's one day of the journey, because they were like just embracing it when you described where you're, what you're trying to do and then how they could build on it. When I think about the broader institution, you know, we want everyone using information to improve outcomes for students, right? So we started out by pulling data together, and when I first arrived at the institution, probably in the second year, established a BI unit, business intelligence unit, because I felt like we didn't understand what we were doing, what worked and what didn't work. People would say, we're doing better, but we don't know why. We're doing worse, but we don't know why. So, um, so we started this whole journey, and so I, I, I could almost write an article on this because I think it's universal. When we first got data out to people to show them what was happening in their programs and their classes, can you imagine what the first answer was to that or the first response? This data is wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. This can't be true. This is not wrong. You, you, you don't know what you're doing. It's wrong data. So it was for two years, it was like, okay, where do you think it's wrong, and let's go in and check, and let's get it right, because we want you to have the right data. It was right, by the way. Uh, and, uh, but we worked through that it was wrong. So then, for the next year and a half, it was, okay, this data is right, but what do you want us to do about it? And uh, so for a year and a half, we dealt with the grief that the data was horrible and it was right, but we feel helpless in the face of this data. And finally, the transition to is like, well, let's look at this data and how can we impact it to make it better. And I, I, it's truly, it is, it's almost like a phase of development that people have to get through and to get over the fear of what that data means and making sense of it. Now let me tell you, the rest of the journey becomes like, then they become data files. Like, well let's look at it this way, let's look at that way. So eventually you have so much data that they can't, I'm like, let's step back and get meaningful data. Because people will start looking at such minuscule things that really don't help you move the dial. But it is, it is a commitment from leadership in an organization that says, we have to become a data-informed institution or school or an organization because we believe in continuous improvement, because we believe in driving better outcomes for our students, for our organization. And when that happens, you just have to stick with it over time. And, uh, and, and there's a financial investment, but I'll tell you, we were in pretty dire financial straits and our initial investment was one talented guy who loved BI and a really inexpensive uh, software program that he found um, and helped us to start building a data warehouse and then from there it just grew. So it's, it, it's not always like we need millions of dollars. Sometimes it's like we're gonna invest $100,000 in this position in this software and we'll start there and let's see where it takes us. I, I love how you talked about the evolution because it is really similar to the evolution that people experienced, I think, um, around the high school transition. And um, I think the emphasis on it taking time and being okay with that and saying that we are, this is a culture shift. This isn't a diet. This is a lifestyle change. <laughs> so right. we're not, you know, like that's kind of the metaphor I always use because People on a diet, right, you do it for a couple of months and then if it doesn't work, or maybe it works, but you, you know. People in Chicago who have gone through this journey sort of say, well, we're never gonna stop doing it because that's who we are now. Um, and so 
really making that investment, but then also saying it's going to take time to shift mindsets, and it's going to take maybe three years, maybe five years, maybe six years, seven years, until your organization really thinks in that, in that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's take a moment here uh, and talk about from your experiences, from your research, and you've already mentioned some, but, but let's kind of delve into a little bit more. Um, some of the, uh, some of the uh, approaches, some of the strategies, um, some of the innovative uh, types of ways of, of, of going about um, attending to the, the transition and the persistence matter uh, that have yielded success, and maybe some others that perhaps have not been implemented yet, but maybe are in a, a piloting stage. Um, for folks out here that both are in the K-12 world as well as in higher education, uh, what are some things that, that you believe um, have a, a longer shelf life and inform us not just today, but more importantly, um, would be uh, something that would inform us tomorrow in terms of the directions that we should, uh, we should go? So, um, I always think of the, um, our research or our data driving just continuous improvement. So I could talk sort of about what we've learned along the way and how we kept changing things. Uh, one of the things that um, we also used because best practices showed it was to create a clear pathways for students in college. So they weren't choosing between hundreds of gen ed courses. They were choosing between three paths. It was pretty straightforward. They didn't end up wasting credits they didn't need to have. And, uh, and that's worked really well. Other than we probably had to add a few, we learned along the way there were sometimes it wasn't working we need to add a little more flexibility, bring in some additional courses into that first couple of years to keep them engaged. Uh, we also learned that our, our data was we were providing all this support for students and it was working. And as we hit our fourth year, um, we kind of feel we may have supported our students too well because it feels like we're trying to throw the birdies out of the nest and they're like, no, no, don't, don't put me out there. So we're, you know, we're like trying to get them to go to, to these job interviews and we're practicing with them, but they're like, well, can't I just keep working here? Like, no, you're gonna graduate and you're gonna go do much better things. So there's, there's something in how we're gonna have to, to change our approach to give students their own sense of agency sooner before they get to that fourth year. Uh, we also did not start out our program with uh, a dev ed program involved. And we, within the first year, realized that the majority of our students were gonna need some um, dev ed work. And we, we actually piloted two or three approaches and then realized that the only one that was really working was, again, the one supported by the literature, which had students doing the, the dev ed requirement commensurate with their general college work. So when I think about um, our, our career work, we're trying to get students ready for careers, and our research showed that um, in year, if we saved the heavy lift for year three, it was too late. So we've infused the career work starting in year one to get those students ready to really be thinking about what it takes to transition and be employable and what's the career mindset that they need to have. So it's, it's more of, I think of our research as just an attitude that thinks about what is the data telling us. Um, our, we use an adaptive learning curriculum in their first two years. And uh, the good thing about that adaptive learning curriculum, it's in, they go online and that actually functions as their textbook. They go online and 
we can see whether they've spent the time doing the work, and we can also see if our students are all struggling with the same concept. So when they come into class, we can actually differentiate the instruction for the students because we know where, where one is, there's a big issue we need to cover for all of them, others we may break off into groups to address particular issues they didn't understand. Uh, and we can also talk to them when they're not doing their work. Uh, just as a quick aside, I had an opportunity to meet Bill Gates, and Bill Gates was saying to me like, well, what is the most amazing thing that you think is so revolutionary in education today in technology? And I'm like, well, you're gonna wanna hear something from me that says like, this will happen and millions of students can be changed immediately. And I go, but that's not what I have to tell you. I said, the thing that has really struck me is this ability for us to see if students are doing the work. I go, are you, I go, have you ever been able to say, no, the dog did not eat your homework, and no, you did not do the work, and in reality, I mean, we literally had students we coached to say like, well, you know, you probably need to spend a little more time on this, and they're going, I did, I did, and you go, well, let's go look, and then you hear them in the other room going, don't go in there and tell them that you spent the time because they know. <laughs> so it just changes the game when you're able to really see, is the issue time on task? Is the issue um, grappling with the concept? Or is the issue that they're too afraid to even give it a shot? Because it means different things in terms of how you work with them. So yeah, that's not gonna create scale of a million, but it makes scale of a difference, one at a time for those students who need it the most. So those are the kinds of things that we keep looking at to improve our practice. And, um, and I'm sure we'll continue to do it as we go along. It's, that's our commitment, is to keep improving outcomes. Great. Um, so I like Naveen's um, answer that, that this was really more of a continuous improvement approach because every school in the city, as they started working with the data and started working in teams to look at the data on their freshmen, attacked slightly different parts of the problem depending on what was going on in their school context and with their kids. Um, so I like to say that the freshman on track movement in Chicago was not a policy, it wasn't a program, it was an approach. Um, but there were some commonalities, and one of the things that people, most people got to eventually when they started working on and looking very specifically at why are so many students failing or why are grades so low in our school and looking at this over time was looking at their grading practices and trying to get a handle on whether they were fair and equitable. Um, and that's a heavy lift for a lot of people and, and it's, um, it's a sensitive subject also for a lot of teachers um, to look and, and take a really hard look at their grading practices. But what a lot of schools found was that their grading practices didn't make any sense, um, were totally inconsistent from one teacher to another, and were much more tied to compliance than to mastery and to figuring out what really students knew. Um, and too often, they were sort of punitive, so they were about making sure kids did the work rather than helping them get better at it. And when you're talking about a population of students, especially first-generation college students, um, especially underrepresented minority students, um, it may be the case that the equitable situation is to give multiple chances to learn something. And so um, 
you know, I, I remember this one principal at a school that had changed to a standards-based grading system talked about um, that she had been a horrible swimmer. And um, if she had been graded on being thrown into the deep end the first time she ever learned how to swim, and from then on, that grade stuck with her for the rest of her life, um, that really wouldn't have been very fair, but she ended up learning how to swim. So which matters more, that she couldn't swim when she started or that by the end of it, she became a good swimmer? Um, and so that was sort of what she held as she changed their grading practices. And, and that was a really heavy lift that took a couple of years in that school, but made a huge difference where they all spent a lot of time figuring out, okay, what is it that we want students to learn and how are they going to show that and how many opportunities are they going to, sh going to have to show mastery of something um, versus how many worksheets did I turn in um, and am I complying with what the teacher wants me to do at any given moment in the classroom? So that was one of the big shifts. Um, another thing that, that ended up happening at a lot of schools was orientation and having a really robust freshman orientation so that the first time you came and tried to open your locker um, was not the first day of school. So this is, you know, not rocket science, but for people who, especially in Chicago, and this is actually in Chicago, the situation is sort of akin to college because people are coming from schools all over the city. You're not just going to your neighborhood high school. People are crisscrossing the city. They're coming with new kids who they may never have known. So to have a situation where before school even starts to have a really robust um, orientation where they feel connected to the school before school even starts actually really made a, a big difference. Um, and there's a lot of other little interventions. I mean, a million. But most of them came out of this work where people were working together over time, um, looking at data to see, are they making improvement? If not, go back and, and, and look at other, other, you know, try again and making small changes. And if they see data, you know, making an improvement, great. If not, let's go back and make a different kind of change. Excellent, thank you. We've got just enough time here. I'll uh, ask our panelists if you could, uh, just give us some closing comments and final thoughts here today. So we'll start with you, Naveen. On anything? <laughs> <laughs> Remotely, Jermaine. <laughs> um, so I, I would just say that I think that um, we really do have to think about sort of the, the uh, being a more data-informed, more empirically focused um, uh, a population in general, because I, I do feel like there are so many vulnerable periods in the development of kids that, you know, you see a lot of focus today on early childhood education, and it's critical. It's absolutely critical that we look at the, the, the seminal phase of kids uh, as they enter the school system. It's also incredibly critical to look at the first year of life when you have an opportunity to expand brain function when the, the myelination of the sheets of the brain is happening. So if you think about each of those areas, they're, they're each very important. Each of them alone is not enough. We have to care about that. We have to care about that transition in kindergarten. And we have to care about the transition in the middle, middle school. We have to care about the first year of high school. We have to care about their first year of college. And if we can be deliberate about that, I think that we can start really moving the needle on outcomes for our kids across the country. Uh, I also think that each you know, 
I've heard for decades, really, you know, sort of the high schools will say, well, the colleges, they screw it all up when the kids graduate. I mean, we graduate them, and then you guys screw it all up. And the colleges say, uh, well, if you'd send us kids that were ready for college, what, we would do a much better job. And, uh, and you hear this sort of, this, yeah, I hear mumbling like everyone's like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> um, fact is that that is the most unproductive conversation. And it doesn't really help us move anything. What I uh, communicated at our institution is almost like we have to have arms spread out. We need to be holding hands with the high school and saying, let us work together to bridge students from your organization to us. And we have to be holding hands with employers and say, let us work together to bridge our graduates successfully from their college experience into successful, sustainable employment. And I think if we all sort of see ourselves as owning a little bit of the next piece, that we're gonna be able to create a much better outcome for all of our citizens in this country. And that to me is probably one of the most radical changes I'd like to see. So you have to fight it because each organization much more quickly wants to say it's the other organization's fault as opposed to how do we work together so one plus one equals three on behalf of students who are navigating their way through an educational system to prepare them for sustainable careers, economic, social mobility, and, and building opportunity for themselves and their families. And, and if we can do that, I think that we're going to be heading in the right direction. So I hope that that would be the biggest thing I'd want you all to take and, and a commitment to say we're going to all reach out our arms and link together on behalf of kids. I love that. That's actually similar to what I was going to say, but probably more articulately said. Um, so I should just let, leave it at, at that. But um, I think for me, one of the huge takeaways while I was writing my book um, was every time I talked to somebody, they said, you should talk to this person because this person had a huge role in, in, in this freshman on track movement in Chicago. It was unbelievable how connected all the different organizations in the city were. The nonprofit organizations in the city, the philanthropic part of the community, um, CPS, Chicago Public Schools. There was, it was a movement of a city, not a movement of a single institution. And so I would just echo what Naveen said, which is that this isn't going to happen with one group of people. And the amount of learning that took place across organizations um, was really remarkable. And so the fact that you all are here today um, clearly indicates that you are excited about learning from other people and from each other. Um, and so I'm um, excited to see what comes out of this. Please join me in thanking our panelists. And again, a reminder that today's panel discussion is available on the Future Insight podcast. Thank you again.